Well, welcome again to week number one of God's Odds, a six-week study of the book of Esther. So I got a quarter. What are the odds that this ends up tails? You know the odds, it's one in two. Now let's go see, and it's not, Ted's. Now, if I pick that coin up four more times and flip it again, what are the odds that it'll land on heads a second time in a row, a third time in a row, a fourth time in a row, and a fifth time in a row? I think it's one in 32 when you do the math. Odds. Like if any of you play poker, you know the, the best odds are to get a pair, and the hardest odds in poker to get is a royal flush. You know what the, are the odds? One in 649,739. Almost 650,000 to one. What are the odds? That your name is similar to someone else's. Like I Google searched my kids to find out how many kids today in the last year had the name Noah. Noah's about a one in 97. But Miranda, my daughter, whose birthday is today, hi honey, happy 26th, is one in about 3,500. The odds are far different that other people bear her name, at least in today's world. How many of you ever had two yolks and one egg when you cracked it open? You're like, what are the odds? It's one in a thousand. So some of you here are like super special. Maybe even this morning you got a, a double yolk. What are the odds? Now you get audited by the IRS, one in 220. Some of, there's more than 220 people here today, so someone in here is probably getting audited at some point this year. What are the odds that you get struck by lightning? Experts say it's one in 15,000. What are the odds that you get killed in an airplane crash? One in 11 million. Some of you might say, so you're saying there's a chance. More of a chance of that than you winning the Mega Millions. I don't know who it was in Illinois that is going crazy right now thinking what they're going to do with all that money. The the one in 300 plus million odds. Like when you think about life, when you think about numbers, when you think about odds, sometimes the odds are really good. They're in your favor. They're, They're one in two or maybe even better. But sometimes the odds are astronomical that you get five numbers plus the Megaball number, all together on one line on a sheet of paper, and your life has changed forever. Some odds make sense. You'd probably bet on it because you believe it will happen. And other things in life, you would say, "I, I can't believe that happened. What are the odds? And I just want you to think about your life. Maybe some of your lives are longer than others, so you've had some of those, what are the odds moments? Like sometimes we jokingly say this, like my friends back in college, my freshman year leading up to November 11th of of my sophomore year would have said, the odds are astronomical that that man who wears those sweatpants with holes in those places ever finds a woman. And then for some reason, this lady, this young woman decided to give me a chance and on my first date, I really impressed her with my Buster Douglas t-shirt and a milkshake. And for some crazy reason, she kept dating me, never broke up with me. We got married, and what are the odds? 
my friends would have said back then, crazy. And the odds that you find somebody like that, some of you saw the picture of the wedding we were at, and uh, she's a beautiful, beautiful woman. Like, I definitely, that was against the odds. Let me jokingly say things like that. But there are other odds moments in your life where you would say, the odds definitely didn't say that that was very likely. Like Pastor Ash, as he retired, whispered to me in my office, and he said, the one thing that I never saw happen here, and I don't think it will happen here just because of this church and the nature of it, that it will ever build a new church. <laughs> he said it wasn't in the odds. Or my son, who's now a second-year medical student, who got into medical school on his first try. That's not normal. What are the odds? And you might have moments like that in your life too. Like you can look back on it. You can trace it. You, you maybe even flipped a coin to decide on it. And, and you can see the things that happened because of that decision that led to that place or that thing that happened that you didn't want to happen that caused that to happen that led you to that place. And you would look back and go, the odds of that happening are in my mind of all those things converging to bring that about we're pretty astronomical. And it's with all of that in mind that I want you to think about your life and, and think about the things going on in your life and, and see in this story some amazing truths we can learn about God and odds. Because a lot of people would say things happen randomly or by chance, but this story is going to reveal to us a, a long shot of all long shots, far more than the Detroit Lions are winning the Super Bowl, one in 15,000, by the way. Sorry, Lions fans, not going to happen. Something far greater than that. Something if you really did the, the numbers and really thought about all that would have had to happen to have it happen, far greater than winning the Mega Millions, the story of Esther. Like so many things that are so unique and so rare to see God's hand involved when not once in the name, literally in the words of this book, God's name is used. God's odds. And today I want you to find a general truth, a main truth, an overarching truth for this series. And, and we're going to see all those things, the, the flips of the coin that the world would say had to happen in order to get to astronomical odds for something ready to be in the right place at the right time in order to have that happen. But the stage doesn't get set until you understand the truth that I think is behind this whole book and, and the truth I want you to take away today. If you're filling in your notes and you're filling in your blanks, here, here's the big idea behind today's message. Uh, you are put in a place, in the place you're in, you are put in place for a purpose. I want you to think about the place you're in right now and I want you to see this big idea because some of you right now might have the question, I don't know if I'm put in this place for a purpose. Like going through that. Suffering, pain, loss, uncertainty, that. Some of you have maybe heard someone who, who gets older say, why am I here? Maybe some of you who are younger right now are searching for purpose and wondering, why are you here? And some of you are going through something and you're saying, why does God have me here? See, this big truth that's in place, you're going to see in these first few chapters that there was a young lady who must have wondered that question, why am I here? Like, seriously. 
How could all this be happening to me? Big idea. You are put in place for a purpose. Have your question in mind. Hold on to this truth. We're going to see it on display and then find a takeaway in, ex- in Esther chapters 1 and 2. Now here's a summary of Esther chapter 1. If you didn't read it already, I want you to understand the story before chapter 2. Chapter 1 introduces us to the setting, gives us the timeline, gives us another main character in the story. His name is Xerxes. This happened during the time of Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush, that's the Far East, to Africa. But when the attendants delivered the king's, uh, king's command, he was having a wild, lavish party, a seven-day bender. Uh, they delivered a, a command to the queen to come. She refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Queen Vashti's done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. Therefore, his leaders are telling him this, if it pleases the king, issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Mede, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all this vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. And here are the takeaways I want you to see in the setting for chapter 2. King Xerxes and his buddies are pigs. They're throwing a lavish party. They're, they're boozing it up. They're, they're probably being very sexual with other women. His wife is not in the party room and, and invites her to come to the party, which is kind of traditional, and she says no. Like, I don't know why. Was she offended? Was she upset? Was she... Felt like she was demeaned. I don't know, but, but Vashti basically says no. Well, it's good to be the king, and a queen in that era saying no to the king was not good, not smart, not wise. And so she loses her position, she loses her crown, add to it, the, the kingdom then gets a decree from the king that says women are to obey fall in line, never to be like Queen Vashti. You have to depose her so that, that all the women get the message of who's the boss. Like, that's the setting. That's the place <laughs> that this story is in. A bunch of womanizing pigs ruling a country, demeaning women, lavish parties, out of control. That is the, the place. to which the the rest of the story gets told. And I want you to have that in mind, keep that in mind over the next few weeks of of what kind of people you're dealing with, how they viewed women, how how at a snap of a finger, a queen could be kicked out of her position and how a king could write a message that had to be followed and could never be changed. And here's the second truth I want you to see in this section. This is a real event in real history, and God recording it records and connects it to a real person. Like a lot of people question the Bible, say that never happened. How do you know that happened? How do you know there was a person named Joshua? Like really, no one recorded his name anywhere else in history. Xerxes is all over the pages of history. Xerxes was the the king of the the powerful Persian army. Uh, He came in to rule, uh, uh, not the first one in the Persian army, but but one of the descendants uh, of Cyrus the Great. He ruled from from east to west of the known world. 
Uh, for some of you, maybe you've seen the movie 300, that, that's Xerxes, those men, his men. Any of you Assassin's Creed's people? Like you play it, you shouldn't play it if you do, but Assassin's Creed, Xerxes is one of the characters and powerful figures in, in that video game. Like people know the name, it's a real name, it's an event in time and history, this isn't made up. And we're gonna see, as you heard me read before, these things are recorded in the annals of history. <laughs> And so when we talk about God's odds, history records these events. These are some of the few events outside of the main history of the most of the Old Testament. Like most of the Old Testament covers 1500 BC to 1000 BC or a little after. 1500 BC is, is Moses, 1000 is David. The next few years down to about 600 are the other kings. So literally a thousand year gap of, of time covers most of the Bible. But these are right at the end. This was written around, the events took place in 500 BC. So right before God shut off communication and recording of scripture. Some of the last words, perhaps written in all the Old Testament, this story, God's odds. And I want you to have all that in the background, the point and the place that you've been put is where Esther was at this point. That's where he picked it up in chapter two. You heard these words before. When Xerxes' fury subsided, he remembered what he had said and decreed about her, and part of the decree was, we'll find someone to replace her. So then the king's personal attendants proposed this as the plan. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. You heard me read that before. He had a cousin named Hadassah who had been brought up because she had, whom he had brought up because she had neither father or mother. This young woman, also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. I just want you to stop and think about that. At this point, in this place, with all that history of what's going on, do you know what had to happen and, and what had transpired and, and what, no doubt, Hadassah, Esther, must have had in her mind? When the king's orders and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to him, whom had charge of the harem. Like sometimes people have made Esther into this beauty pageant, this amazing story of the, of the, like the little mermaid, the, the unlikely character who gets to become the princess and the queen. This is sex trading. Like these are young girls, as described in those words, taken from their homes and forced to go and be put in a harem to be looked at as sexual objects. Now, if you're Esther, have you not by this point asked the question, what's the point of me being in this place? Like a hundred years earlier, Esther's grandparents or maybe her great-grandparents were a part of the people taken away in captivity to be exiled from their homeland by Nebuchadnezzar. Like this wasn't a sign up for an amazing vacation. This was taken away as slaves. They weren't a part of the group that went back. No, they remained behind in this foreign country. So she's in a land that's not her homeland with a people who aren't her own. She's probably looked down upon or would have been if her nationality was known as an outsider and a reject. And add to it, what's the point 
of being in this place. Like, seriously, God, both her mom and her dad died? And now the only family she has, someone who, who took her in, her cousin, who has her in her home, no doubt sees guards who come, line up the beautiful women, and haul her away. Like the big idea you have to have in your mind, if you've ever asked the question, like, God, I don't get the point of, of this place at this time, that's Esther. Why me? Why am I here? Seriously, God. And yet in that moment, what are the odds that of all the beautiful women who had come into the the harem of the king who were being paraded around and, and viewed as objects for the king to pick one, that Esther, this Jewish girl named Hadassah, would be the one chosen by and won favor by the guy in charge of the women. Haggai set up some of the things going on. He made sure she got super taken care of. For some reason, this man was so inclined to, to choose her. For some reason... Vashti was deposed, and, and this broody pageant of not so be- much beauty uh, happened, and, and Esther's there, and Esther actually won his favor, and not only his, but the story goes on. You've heard the rest of it before. She, she goes and she gets selected by the king, but, but as she's there, even before she's selected to be the queen, Mordecai's there walking back and forth every day to keep track of her. He didn't give up on her. He didn't say, nothing I can do. And when he comes to the, the gate, he stands there every day. He makes sure she's okay. And then she's chosen to be the queen. As you look at the verses that, that follow in verse 17, the king was attracted to her more than any of the other women. She won his favor and approval, set a royal crown on her head, and made her queen instead of Vashti. And you still might be wondering why. <laughs> like if you were Esther, would you think this sounds like a great job? Like, if you know the Jewish culture, you know what they were told about who to marry, who not to marry. Like, they weren't supposed to cross cultural lines. They were supposed to marry someone of their religion and faith. She's marrying the ultimate heathen of heathens. The guy who throws bender parties and views women as objects. Sound like the ideal husband you're looking for for Vivian someday? And yet, this, at this point in this story, at this place... We see the hand of God in play. Because here's what happens next. Like you caught the rest of the story and you kind of wonder why the Mordecai part. Mordecai sitting at the gate. Over here is these two king's officers who who are guarding his doorway. Like these two are probably the part of the group of the 300. These are the mighty men. These are are no idiots. These are people who are, are, are good with battle and good with strategy. Like you get put in charge of the king's entrance. Like you're the last line of defense. Like you're the social, uh, you're, the, you're the security for the, the, the president, right? And the people closest to him, the most trusted of them. Like they conspire to kill him. Mordecai finds out about it. Only way he could find out about it is because he's walking back and forth by the gate, keeping tabs on his, his cousin who he cared about, wanted to make sure she was okay. For some reason, maybe they didn't see him or they didn't think he was all that smart. They're having a conversation out there. He gets wind of the plan. He tells the queen who tells the king and he gets credit for it. And the king finds out that it's true. The final verses tell us that. And those men are killed. They're executed. They're put to death. 
And all this was recorded in the presence of the king's book and his annals. So it wouldn't be forgotten. Everything that had to happen transpired. The dominoes that had to fall, that seemed so, what, like, what's the point? Now what? It gets worse and worse. God, why would you have me here? Why would you want me here? What good purpose could come out of any of this? And yet Mordecai, caring for his cousin, wanders and stumbles into the conspiracy theory and tells the king the king's life is spared and he gets credit for it. God has you in a place for a point. But think of all the wheels, all the evil, all the bad, all the unknowns, all the uncertainty that had to transpire and happen in order for for that to happen. God works in bad. God uses bad. God's in control of all things. And I know you can look at it and go, but is it really God? Or just a, a king who's not very good, who, who ID'd the, the hottest young girl to make his wife. And sometimes God can cause evil thing, kings to do not so good things to bring about something good at that point, to bring about his purpose in a place. And I want you to hold on to that event because that event happening is important for the rest of the story. Mordecai at that gate, hearing those words, saving the king's life. Which leads to today's truth. Like, all this is background. This is perhaps a background truth for the whole story. But you see this on display in in these verses, and you're going to see it play out over the next several chapters. God's power always has a good purpose. If you're going to learn any two doctrinal truths in this series, and you're going to see them on display You're going to understand the tension that we wrestle with when we talk about this point at this place in this time, why God has you here, his sovereignty, if you're writing down words, sovereignty, God's rule and reign, the fact that God rules and reigns over all things, his sovereignty, his power, that God can do anything at any point in time, he can step in, he can act, God's power to create, God's power to act, God's power to use, God's power to move Uh, sinful kings and bring about his purpose. God's power always has a good purpose. Sovereignty is power. Providence is purpose. God's rule and reign, sovereignty, God's rule and reign for, blank, purpose, providence. And here's the thing about power and providence. Like, we wish God would step in with power all the time and simply act and do what we know God can do, right? And when he doesn't, we we question his providence. The why, the purpose, the for. See, the only thing we get to understand, sometimes this side of heaven and sometimes not, is, is the for, is providence. Like when you carefully navigate that accident and you don't skid or hit the right or the left wall, but you go through it unscathed, and in the moment you go, angels of God, providence, like hindsight five seconds later tells you someone else was stepping in to to save me. Sometimes you get to do it five, ten years later. 
Like I can celebrate the providence of God on my daughter's birthday, which was 26 years ago, trace it back to that date, which was a lot longer ago, like 32 years ago, 30 years ago, and, and I can trace it back to something that happened before that when I chose not to leave school and chose to stay in school, and the next fall I meet this girl. Like I can see the, everything happening down the road and how God, his rule and his reign for me was in play. God's not a puppet master pulling all the strings. I had choices, but his providence is always with a good purpose. And I need you to hear that right now because some of you are in an Esther moment because you don't know why. You may get hindsight. Esther did. You may not. But you need to celebrate and understand in this story and see sovereignty and providence. Power always has a good purpose. God is always at work for a good purpose. You know how I know that? Because he promises it. This verse, sometimes misused by Christians, I want you to hold on to come back to it throughout the rest of the series because it reinforces today's truth. We know, as Christians, we believe, Paul says, we know, not just head knowledge, but experiential knowledge by faith, we know that in all things, God works. In Red Sea moments that are so good and amazing, and Job moments that are so horrible and so painful, we know that in all things, God is working at sovereignty and providence. It doesn't always work out the way we want. We don't always see the purpose. Sometimes it involves pain and ugly loss and death. Sometimes it leaves us unknowing. Sometimes it's because of our own doing that we're in a certain place at a certain point. But you know what God can do in all things? He can work for the good of those who love him. Like I know people who have landed themselves in prison because of their choices. And in that moment, in all things, God... is sovereign and providence for, can work for the good and will. Maybe the good God is working for right now and in the mess that you are in is to bring your heart to repentance. That's good. In the midst of the sadness and the pain due to nothing you did and and the hurt, God's promise is still real. He's at work in all things for good because he loves you. Sovereignty, great power, providence will always serve a good purpose. And I know that's hard, and I know that's messy, and I know some of you right now might not wholly believe me. But I'm guessing in those moments right then and there, as all that happened to Esther with every domino falling, her family getting hauled off into captivity, her parents being taken from her and dying, her being sex traded off and used as a sexual object by the king, She wouldn't have seen it in the moment, but later hindsight's going to give us an answer that reinforces that truth. God's power, good purpose, sovereignty, providence. And I want you to hold on to that in those moments when you're not certain. Because here's what God says about his promises and his plans. Hold on to this verse. And connected to this one, the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. God works all things for the good of those who love him, who can call according to his purpose. And you know what his ultimate purpose for you and for me is? Heaven. And you know who set aside his sovereignty so that you and I might be there? Jesus. 
And you know why he did that? Providence. His rule and reign for you and me was desired for all eternity. And so God planted him in a place for a point to accomplish his purpose. Like the name of God might not be found on any of the pages of of this book, but as you're going to see over the next few weeks, that truth and that takeaway reinforce that promise. Because some people would say, this was random luck. It's against all odds, but Mordecai just stumbled into the right place at the right time. Esther, you know, might have been in the wrong place at the right time, but it brought about that. Now, I would tell you this about God's odds. God's time is always the right place because it's God's place at the right time because God rules over time. And the odds when they're in God's hands are always good because his sovereignty and providence is for you and me forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we see this story and there's so much more to it. Like Esther was living it. Like she was in it. Like every bad break went against her. Every position she was in and place she was put was, was why. It was filled with brokenness and pain and hurt. And there are some people, Lord, who are going through that. And we'll never maybe find out why. Hindsight won't allow us to see it this side of heaven. Maybe we will. But in those moments, let us hold on to this truth that, that we're seeing God at work 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, and having people in a place for a point. Because God's power always serves a good purpose. Lord, as the next few weeks unfold and we see more of these God's odds moments that are defy everything, but how you use them to, to bless, help us see it too. Because maybe the place you have us planted right now is intended to bless that person, plus us, or keep us in relationship with you until the ultimate blessing you have in store for us. So Lord, whatever it is, whatever the point, help us see the purpose. Amen.